Before we look into God's word, let's bow for a word of prayer. O holy heavenly Father, we thank thee for the power of thy presence. Lord, for a legacy that has been left in thy word, that has been chiseled into the hearts of all of thy believers through each and every experience in their lives. Father, this legacy of delivering, this legacy of never failing, this legacy of providing thy people with nothing short of what we truly need. And Father, it is in faith in the power of the shed blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, the power that comes through thy Holy Spirit, Father, that we welcome thee here in our midst, anxiously awaiting what thou wouldst teach to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the Lord. I believe we have a powerful theme this year for Eastern Camp and would like to read that passage as a starting point. But before we do so, perhaps uh, we could turn to Deuteronomy and just want to provide a little bit of a backdrop to what exactly is going on in the second chapter of Joel. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is a very powerful passage in that it was a declaration given to the children of Israel before they would go and inherit the promised land. It's very sobering because it's very foreboding. You see, there's, it's a rather lengthy chapter. There's 68 verses. And only 14 of which speak about the blessings that are available for God's people if they will obey him. And the balance of the chapter for what happens in disobedience Just beginning in verse 1, it says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and so on and so forth. Many blessings through the first 14 verses. Verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. One of which I would just like to read in the verse 42. And it says, All thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. As a bit of a backdrop, many, many, many years ahead of time, this is what was prophesied to the children of Israel. And now turning to Joel... 
If we just look in the first chapter and read the fourth verse, it says, That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locusts eaten. And it's interesting as we would scan through the first 11 verses of this second chapter of the prophet Joel, we can read about a day of the Lord that's coming upon them, a day of darkness, it says, of gloominess. And it talks about this army, this great people and strong. There hath never been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it. It goes on to talk about all of the plush crops and, and, the, and all the fruit of the land was as the Garden of Eden before them. And yet after they are coming and consuming, it's, it's, it's being devoured as a flame burneth, it says. It talks about the appearance of them. These locusts that are coming that are ravaging the countryside. They are as the appearance of horses. As horsemen, so shall they run. It talks about them climbing up the walls, climbing and going into the windows of the houses. It talks about how futile the edge of the sword is against this army. It talks about the people's faces being blackened. And you can well imagine the sheer horror that they must have been going through to watch all of their livelihood. It talks about the cattle being confounded, perplexed in verse 18 of chapter 1 because they have no pasture. To watch in a few moments of time the ravaging and destroying of all of that beautiful fruit. And I want you just to imagine the condition of their souls and the concern that must have gripped their hearts. But there is a cry being made, Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. And we start now in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Joel. Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? What a beautiful exhortation to the people in this time of dire need. 
And it is that one word, turn, that I would like to focus on this evening. The aspect of turning to the Lord. Because you see, we have, a, we have a word that we use a lot. Repentance. I want to talk about repentance tonight. And the importance of a true-hearted conversion before a holy God. And I think that the devil can see the potency and the power of a transformation that can take place in a heart that repents. Because you see, far too often, cheap grace is offered in its place. It's far too uncomfortable to go where you need to go on the road to repentance. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's not going to make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And so we make a shortcut. We simply remove all of those things that, that provide the, the prickles and the, the, the discomfort. And we make everything warm and fuzzy. And you know, it's interesting that this is nothing new. What we see, this cheap grace that's offered, that would circumvent the powerful rebirth experience that can take place in a human heart. It's not really customary to, to read minutes of members' meetings publicly, but uh, seeing that uh, these words that were spoken were, uh, were published actually in a previous camp hymnal, I would simply like to read the words of Brother Henry Michelle. 63 years ago, there was a brothers' meeting in Mansfield, Ohio. Many topics were discussed. I don't even think my father was thought of at the time, so I certainly can't tell you much about it. But here's what he said. Not boasting, but we have the best thing in the world. The more we look at it, the more we have to marvel how much light has been given to our brothers and how much light is given to us in our time. We don't want to have an alliance with other congregations. That is not the meaning I want to make myself free. We don't want to have the way of making Christians easily or quickly. Sometimes, just the signing of a paper or the signing of a Bible or Testament or the raising of a hand is a proof that they have accepted Christ as their personal Savior. We are not in agreement with this. There is much more behind new birth than just a moment of emotion where under the pressure of a fiery preaching, we stretch out the hand and say we have accepted Christ. 
It is a sign of the times to have such quick and spectacular results. We do not believe in such a way of making conversions. We believe in the slower, more difficult way of going through repentance, confession, and so on. We believe in an absolute, sincere, complete conversion. A problem that was striking the church many, many years ago. And no, I don't, I don't think we should worship individuals. I don't think that we should hold up tradition just for the sake of holding up tradition or looking at uh, an identity with something on this earth. However, it is one of the beautiful characters of our denomination as apostolics that we do not take the repentance and conversion to Jesus Christ lightly. It's because we don't want anything more than the very best for those who would be drawn of God and called. We don't want to see a shortcut that would circumvent the very important work that needs to take place. It absolutely is not a works-based salvation. It's not as though a certain amount of time needs to be put in to get a check in the box or a certain number of loops need to be jumped through. And I certainly don't want to take this evening to lay out a step-by-step recipe as to how one might repent. God works in each individual in a unique and, and powerful way. But there are a few elements of repentance that must be. They simply must be. Remove them, and you've lost everything. You may have a, a, a joining of a, in a social manner, joining some sort of a collective. You may have uh, made yourself feel comfortable. But without these key elements of repentance, you haven't been regenerated. You haven't been born again. And we'd like to focus on those tonight. First of all, what we can see, it's certainly in, in the plight of the children of Israel here, I believe the very first element that, that has to be in place is you've got to hit rock bottom. Because you see, if there's, if there's anything left within yourself, if there's anything that you're still bringing to the table, you don't have the point. If there's anything that's still getting in the way, 
The Lord doesn't have your heart to do his work. It's only when we're beneath it all, when you've fallen so far down that you can't go any lower. It's only then that we can look up and see Jesus. Absolutely bankrupt. That's where repentance begins. For Saul of, of, of Tarsus, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, trained up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel as pertaining to the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. Even this Saul had to be knocked to the ground so that he could look up and see Jesus who he was persecuting. After his heart was changed, after he was born again, he would go on to say that all those things that were gained to me I count as a loss for Christ. That's where we need to be. That's where repentance starts. Is at rock bottom. I think of the prodigal son who, who was obviously the son of a very wealthy man. Who took his father's inheritance and ran off far away. And it says he wasted his substance with riotous living. Oh, he was throwing a big party. Had lots of friends. So long as there was money to spend. And he spent it all. And there was a famine in the land. It says he began to be in want. And it was only when, as the Bible tells us, he fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. Which is a rather noteworthy plight for a young Jewish man, let me tell you. But it was only then, when he was at rock bottom, the Bible tells us that he, quote, came to himself. Such beautiful language to describe that point of realization. The realization that it was all empty and that he was worthless, that he had nothing, that he was nothing, that he was bankrupt. Absolute humility. Because there's nothing left. That's where repentance begins.
you've got to go to the rock bottom. Because the only place you can look from there is up. would like to read a few verses in Romans. Romans chapter 7. This same Saul of Tarsus. Who was forever changed when he picked himself up off the ground. When he spoke face to face with Jesus. He says in verse 18, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. And he works his way to verse 24 where he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That is rock bottom. O wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? From the body of this death. I don't know how many unconverted are here. Or not yet converted, I should say. I would imagine there's quite a few here this year. And we've got dead people walking. but you need to realize it for yourself. You need to get there to that point where you can call yourself a wretched man, a wretched woman, and cry out, who is going to free me, deliver me, from the body of this death. The easy road doesn't like the wretched man experience. And if the devil is going to go for you this week, because perhaps... The Lord is going to draw you to him this week. And the devil is not going to make easy work of that. And he's going to offer you an easier road. 
we're just going to kind of skirt around the wretched man experience. Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't take the shortcut. You need to see what all you'll be robbing yourself of. You need to go to the cross. You need to find the bottom where you can see yourself for who you really are. A sinner who's separated from his God. Because you see, what did the Apostle Paul, what was he then able to conclude after he declares himself a wretched man and he cries out, who shall deliver me? It's then, once again on the bottom, that he can look up and say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who's going to deliver Jesus declared, I have overcome the world. All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. There's no one else that you want. There's no one else that you need. You need the power of Jesus Christ. He will deliver you from the body of this death. Don't sell out for cheap grace. Don't dodge the wretched man experience. Because it will be the most beautiful point in your life when you can look back and remember when you saw Jesus and when he delivered you from your condemnation. when he saved you by his own shed blood. You see, what really needs to take place as we find rock bottom, Jesus Christ himself says in John 12, and he's really referring to himself here, he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve, him, serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Where was Christ? His hour was come. The corn of wheat needed to fall in the ground and die. Look at all the fruit that was born because of the death of Jesus Christ. 
And it is in the likeness of Jesus Christ dying on the cross that we too, this human nature, this flesh, this self, must die. And unless we die to self, we abide alone. Alone, wretched, undelivered. But if we can die to self, in the same manner that Jesus Christ died on the cross, it will bear much fruit. We will bear much fruit. I want to challenge you to dig up an apple tree And find me the seed that germinated it. That seed had a purpose. It had to fall in the ground and it actually had to die and give forth to the fruit so that there could be fruit. And we've got to get our filthy selves as flesh and blood out of the way. So that God can bring his fruit. So there's a death that takes place. And I will promise to you again. It's not a pleasant experience. It's not going to be warm and fuzzy. It's not going to make you feel good about yourself. But it's where you need to be. Because you see, what follows the death of the self is a rebirth experience. We, something is born again. We'd just like to read a few verses in John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. And said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus doesn't waste any time with pleasantries here, and he cuts right to the chase. And Jesus answers and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there will be a new birth of the Spirit inside of our hearts. When we die, when we relinquish everything and lay it all down, a tremendous birth takes place of the Spirit within us. And then the fruit starts. This is really a difficult, 
This is a difficult phase to really describe because it's beyond words. The power of the Holy Spirit is beyond words. You know, the Bible tells us, it, it, it likens it to, to the wind that blows here and there, wherever it wants to, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't see where it came from or where it's going. And there's this power that, that you can't really trace. But lives have been completely turned around. And, and, and not by the power of the flesh, not by willpower, not by discipline, not by people who are digging something out of themselves, but it comes from the power of the Spirit. Lives have been changed. You won't recognize people anymore because of the beauty and the glory of what God has done in their lives. Let's take a look at the Apostle Paul, this Saul who was persecuting the church, intercepting letters. When they were being put to death, he was giving his voice against them. Holding the cloaks of those that stoned Stephen. Saul got knocked to the ground. Saul looked up and saw a light the light of Jesus Christ. Saul died. And the Spirit was born in him. I want you to imagine the the distress of the believers who were hiding from him, who were trying to, to avoid being captured by him and imprisoned or killed for their faith. Now I want you to imagine them being called in a vision that they're going to go and meet this man. Imagine the fear and the trepidation. But then imagine the glory of God when they saw someone who was not Saul in any way, shape, or form. When they saw nothing short of Jesus Christ in His life, in His sacrifice, in His willingness to spend and be spent for the Gospel, to travail again in birth until Christ be formed in some of His people. What a change that took place in his life. When we repent, we, we need to make confession. 1 John 1 tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the Holy Spirit can bear witness to us of those sins that we've committed that need to be confessed. There is also restitution. And once again, the Spirit can open our eyes and show us where we may have hurt somebody, 
Or how can we claim to be the sons and daughters of God when we've hurt somebody and wronged them? I think of Zacchaeus who climbed a tree because he was so short to see Jesus Christ who who when he came up to him said, come down because I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus fell under the conviction. And you know what he said? He was a very rich man. He said, the half of my riches I give to the poor. And if I have taken money from anybody by false accusation, I restore unto him fourfold. He went back and paid back four times as much. Not because there was some rule that you're supposed to do that. This was out of the abundance of his heart as the Holy Spirit was moving in his heart. And that's the beauty of what can happen. Because you see, there, there is no recipe that we could spell out every last step. Do this, do that, do this, do that. But the Holy Spirit can bear witness to you the truths about your life, about the sin in your life, and about who you may have hurt or wronged in any way. It doesn't stop there. Your whole life long, as you walk with the Lord, the Holy Spirit can show you people in need. He can show you people and have you happen upon people who for no earthly reason should have had anyone help them that day. But the Spirit will take you there. Or perhaps it's a word that you say that was just what what was needed or a gift of charity that was the last leg that kept a mission or a charity going because the Spirit moved in your heart. There's no bound to the power of the Holy Spirit when he is born into the heart of a convert. It's really too hard to describe. It's the most beautiful thing you could ever have. And the last aspect of repentance, one that ought to be clearly evident too in our lives, is victory. There must be victory. Victory over our condemnation. To that, I would just like to read one verse. Romans 8.1. Powerful words. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Absolute, unadulterated victory. Complete, absolute reconciliation with God. Victory over the former condemnation 
But there is also the victory that we can enjoy over the flesh, over sin. Romans 6. Know ye not that that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The body of sin is destroyed. We become dead. As good as dead to sin. How well can these hands move and this mouth speak and this body be animated for the purpose of sin when it's dead? There is nothing that can be done. And and that is the likeness that we are called to when we are born again. This flesh no longer moves to serve sin. But rather to serve Christ. I want to tell you about a... um, An aerospace term. I, I work a lot in the aerospace field, and there's a beautiful uh, aspect that has a, has a beautiful analogy. I want to talk to you a little bit about FADEC. FADEC is an acronym, F-A-D-E-C, which stands for Full Authority Digital Engine Control. And what that means... As you see, an airplane engine, and certainly as it's come across all the evolution to today, is a very complex piece of machinery. There's fuel intake, there's air intakes, densities of air, temperatures, pressures, all sorts of things have to be monitored. And you know, there are computers on these things nowadays that can, that can sample all of the conditions of the engine thousands of times a second and can make changes as needed. And one of the big concerns is is not only reliability so that you get to where you're going in your airplane, but another concern is efficiency of fuel burn. And they want to be able to achieve that in a variety of conditions. Maybe you have uh, very low temperatures, icing, known icing conditions, or other things, very hot, dry air. Lots of different conditions, and how do we achieve efficiency in each and every one? Well, the full authority aspect of FADEC, what that means is there is no manual override in the cockpit. 
What that means is that the pilot has been relegated to insignificant. He has no means of controlling that engine. There is a computer system on board, and it is in complete control of that engine. So if it fails, you lose the engine. But you know what a beautiful analogy. Full authority and control. You see, a pilot could never do what these computers with their very high frequency response can do. And we too, this flesh, could never do what the power of the Spirit can do. Are you and am I giving full authority and control to the Holy Spirit in our lives? Or is there a manual override when things get bumpy, when things aren't convenient, When the order seems too tall, is there a manual override? And you know, repentance is is not something that just happens once in the life of a believer. It's such a beautiful thing to hit rock bottom, to look up. And seek the Lord Christ. And to give him full authority. In our lives. I promise you tonight. That you cannot imagine. In your wildest dreams. Where the Lord will take you. If you give him full authority and control in your life. So for my unbelieving friend, not yet converted, this isn't going to sound too nice, but I wish, I pray for nothing more for you this week than to hit rock bottom. Because it's only then that you're going to see Jesus face to face.